All right. So welcome, Adam. Thanks a million for uh, for coming here. I just so um, for any of the, the the students who might who might be aware of, of what it is you do. So you are the creator and presenter, producer of um, Attaboy Clarence and The Secret History of Hollywood, amongst various other things that when I tried to figure out exactly all the things you, you do, I, I <laughs> ran out of, uh, of energy. Um, so we might talk about those things as well. But yeah, thanks so much to, to come today. Um, so this is, we've, this is part of um, a media careers seminar we've been running where we've had people coming in um, from doing all sorts of different jobs related to film and media generally. And just to give students a sense of what's involved in those jobs, um, the kinds of skills you need, the kinds of activities that make up the jobs. Um, and, and then just to talk a little bit about what excites you and, and, and all those things. So um, yeah, I'm very excited. We've had Oscar nominated directors and screenwriters and cinematographers on here, but I think this is the most starstruck I've been because Adam, you, you're, you literally has, have been in my head for the last, uh, well, at least five years. So it's, it's been very really comfortable there, Con. Thank you very much. <laughs> Well, the biscuits. I, I think I mentioned <laughs> previously on Twitter, there have been like, I remember where certain, I was where certain events happened in the stories that you were telling on your podcasts. And they've, okay. they've kind of intertwined with my, my own personal life, the stories of, of Val Luton and, and Jimmy Cagney and all sorts of people, which has been great. So yes, um, so we might start, I, I mean, actually, I know what I want to start with. I was reading an article in which uh, the New Statesman were, uh, wrote about, was writing about your podcast and they described your podcasting success as a fairy story. So uh, has it felt like a fairy story to you? It really has actually, yeah. I mean, I remember I got to, I think I started podcasting when I was 38, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm 44 now, so six years I've been doing it. And, um, and I was kind of settled on life's path, should we say, you know, my direction was set, you know, had children, had a sort of job that wasn't really going anywhere, was literally envisaging um, just working at it until I was 60 and then living off my state pension and, you know, just making, you know, I think I've even said it a few times that um, my children count as the thing that I'm leaving to the world. Sure. And then, and then all of a sudden, I just decided to one day strike out on something different, and it's worked out incredibly well. I think fairy tale is very yeah. nice, and very appropriate way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, um, I think it's 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 amazing because even when I mentioned to uh, to people I knew outside of film about that I was talking to, there were so many people who I wouldn't have thought were big classical Hollywood film uh, lovers <laughs> who knew of your podcast so it's it's gotten oh, um, thank you. so much That's attention very it's great and well deserved um thank you so yeah so the, so basically as I said you you your main two gigs anyway are, well it started out with with Attaboy Clarence in which you have lots of fun and you talk about uh, about classical movies that you've seen and you 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 play all-time radio dramas and then Secret History of Hollywood in which you you delve in a little more detail into into particular stories from from the history of Hollywood. So obviously the the uh, the, the common denominator there is 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 classical Hollywood and and old movies. So what is it that uh, that what is it you love about classical movies? Um, blimey, it's, I think I'm attracted to that. I always say that period in history. But then I remember there were two world wars and a flu pandemic. So I kind of think it wasn't that time in history. I think it was more the fact 
that people had different ideals in those times, you know, like I've got an autograph book from the thirties and it's filled with people that are, you know, explorers or uh, writers or, you know, or, or, you know, scored a hundred at Lords or something like that. They all like achieve something. You just imagine being with them in there in that moment. And everyone was very, uh, not so focused on, well, they were focused on possessions, but not so much on getting ahead, but contributing towards society. And I think old movies, for some reason, seem to exemplify that. And I really just love that attitude. I just like, I like the fact that, you know, heroes were, were people who put thoughts and ideas into the world. So when you see stories about them, um, and they're all relatively short as well, <laughs> because my brain can't handle <laughs> long stories, ironically, it's how I make the longest podcasts in the world. But um, yeah, so I just, I just really ad admire the time, I admire the fashions, I love the look of it. It's almost like if I could travel back and avoid the world wars, then, uh, then yeah, I think I would go back in time. So yeah. it's, it's like um, Midnight in Paris. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah, that's perfect. That's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. If I could just walk back and spend a couple of evenings per week there, then um, yeah, I need to get in touch with Owen Wilson and find out how it was done. <laughs> yeah. Or do you remember that 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 short-lived TV series with Rodney from um, Only Fools and Horses? Good night, sweetheart. Yes. That's um. It's funny you should mention. That. <laughs> I had a bit of a marathon on those. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and watched them all through and every single episode I thought I wish I could find an alley that would take me back in time <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> so, so yeah so they present a kind of a perhaps a you know a simpler time or a, a more ideal idealistic time perhaps also an idealized time when we look back at it I think it's idealized because I'm sure that people back then even the people who were you know swinging champagne at the top of Manhattan sky rises and you know wearing uh, tucks and tails to dinner every night I'm sure they had their share of problems um but yeah I mean there was a depression and there was a world war and a pandemic and there was poverty but I don't know I think um, perhaps in 80 years time people will look back on the 2020s and go oh what a golden halcyon era that was sure. <laughs> so, so I think it's I think it's just that I'm a, and that's a nostalgic so yeah. I always find a period that I'd rather be in. <laughs> no, no, I can definitely, I can definitely empathise with that. And it's funny, like over the last year, when we've all been escaping uh, from our little worlds, uh, for mm. me myself, the thirties and forties has often been the place I wanted to uh, to escape to. Also, this it's just such a comfort, isn't it? It's like wrapping a blanket around yourself. <laughs> I, I, you know, I watch, I watch the movies all day. Um, I try, even try and eat the food, <laughs> cook the dishes that they make. I go to bed listening to old time radio, and I write about these people all day long, which is um, which is a true honour. So yeah, you do need to. I find you do need to be careful sometimes. I um, I I I watch a lot because I, I it's my area of research. I watch a lot of thirties and forties melodramas, and mm. I sometimes you find myself having to stop myself asking my wife you know, would she sacrifice everything for me at the drop of a hat? Because, you know, your, your ideas of gender relations, for example, can become a little... Uh, <laughs> it's very true. I always worried about that. My kids are going to watch too many um, movies from the 30s and, uh, you know, go into a bar, meet a man and end up, you know, being proposed to and married the next day, which is basically <laughs> how all of those stories work. Oh, you're very nice. Should we get married? Yeah, let's spend our lives together. And <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Simple times. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, so obviously there's lots of people out there who love who love old movies and uh, lots of them listen to your podcast. But <laughs> uh, so tell us a little bit about how then you 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 turned 
what what was you know just a hobby and presumably you intended the podcast to be just a hobby when it first started so so how did that start out and what was you know well was I actually moment? had I had big plans for it you know <laughs> this was my plan my plan was that I was going to uh, I wanted to write for Empire magazine and uh, yeah, because I liked films I specifically liked old films so I thought what a great career that's going to be all I need to do is write a letter obviously and um, they'll hire me on the spot but then I thought no it's probably best if I have a body of work um, so I started writing reviews for old films and I was listening to lots of podcasts at the time because I was driving for a living and I just thought to myself why aren't I recording these and putting these out as a podcast so um so my end game was always this I was going to write for Empire magazine become a great you know film authority then I was going to write a book which is really easy to do once you've written for a magazine for five minutes uh then that book was going to be adapted for the screen and I was going to get an Oscar that was basically my <laughs> that was basically my path to glory you're at um, least so halfway I, there at this stage <laughs> well it's really funny you should say it so basically I started recording these um these uh reviews I was writing um then I decided to become a bit more ambitious because the podcast was Astro Clarence and it was just movie reviews and old time radio, which were two things I loved. So I decided to go a bit more in depth and write the story of the Sherlock Holmes movies, which, you know, with Basil Rathbone and Elijah Bruce, which are my favorite series. So um, I thought, well, I'd be, you know, I could do a retrospective two hour episode on that. And the more I wrote, the more I kind of uh, thought, well, maybe this is a good idea for a show too. So I, kept putting these larger shows every five episodes or something on Atipo Clarence and the, the whole feed became a bit messy like some people would come for the reviews some people would come for the longer ones so I split them apart and I made the secret history of Hollywood as the you know the more in-depth one and I've, I've carried on with both because Atipo Clarence for me is, is it's a lovely palate cleanser in between these huge long projects that drain you completely so um, I find that you know a good a good weekly reminder of why I fell in love with old movies in the in the first place is is, is needed. Sure. But um, yeah, the shows have evolved. They both evolved really. So um, yeah, I, I enjoy them immensely, and I couldn't do one without the other either. I don't think so. They both <laughs> they serve either side of my brain. <laughs> That's really interesting, and um, yeah, I, and I want to kind of come back to that question about how you you know just actually the process of putting them together and and i guess mm. the, you know the demand that that makes on you but i mean it, it just to a little bit go in a little more detail about that idea of how, of how they you know the, the format that they took and how they evolved mm. because obviously i mean 2014 i'm trying to think back to what the podcasting landscape was like then was very different. I was very lucky, actually. I think I just snuck into the rug, uh, sorry, under the rug before it, it had a real boom. I think Serial had just come out when I launched first. And I was very into hardcore history. Mm. And um, we, you know, so many people are, obviously. But um, I remember thinking to myself, well, these longer shows are possible. You know, people like them. And I remember looking at his Twitter account and saying, oh, he's got 200,000 followers. It can't be unpopular to do a longer show. So I started doing longer and longer. And I've always been a bit of a frustrated writer anyway. I tried writing a novel for 10 years. And, you know, I've got like 50 drafts of this thing and none of them go past chapter three. So my problem is that I, I have a story in my head, but I just can't seem to work out where everything fits. Like I can write okay, 
but I can't work out the story itself. Like, how, what, what happens to that character in the next scene and the next scene? But when it comes to translating history, you know, it's there for you. It's, it's up to you to write the blanks in, which is, you know, a very crude way of putting it. But I found that that formula seems to click better for me, like yeah. taking a true life story where everything's already worked out in terms of structure. And then I make it interesting or, you know, make it, you know, dramatic or something. But um, so the longer shows, they, they, they kind of started off very documentary fashion, I would say. Like the, the Sherlock Holmes show is just basically a rundown of the films, a, a small review of each film and what was going on in their lives at the time and anything else they were up to. And then uh, the second one was called Sex and Monochrome, and that was slightly longer. And I, I thought, you know, that's a good subject to do. Pre-code um, sex in cinema. I decided to like avoid violence because it's too broad a term, but sex is kind of, it's a bit more, I don't know, it's a bit more, I don't know, intriguing, I guess, for listeners as well. I was trying to go for a bit sensational. <laughs> but um, so I, I did a, a, the same sort of thing. Just, sorry? You put sex in the title and double your listeners. Exactly. And yeah, I did as well. <laughs> so I decided to, you know, do sex. It was the same kind of thing, really, rundown of all the films I could find in the pre-code era. But I decided to go back a bit further and find out, you know, why why the attitudes were that way at the time and why the Catholic Legion of Decency came into effect and and what was happening with censorship all over the place and who were the people that were making these films and who were the people that were pushing for these films to be seen and, and who were the ones pushing against. And I guess, I don't know, the more, the more I did it, the, the, I'd say the better I got, but the better I got at research, definitely. And the, the more I found my own style. I didn't have a style before. It was just trivia, 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 the end. It was some pleasant music going behind it. But I think because I've been so into old time radio, which has really, really, you know, changed the shape of my brain almost. I can't, you know, have a conversation without some kind of background music and you know, some dramatic kind of lilting melody behind it. So um, I think, you know, coupled, you know, if you couple, you know, put all those things together, Hollywood stories, um, research history, dra dramatic, you know, effects and all through audio, we arrive at uh, what I'm making now, which are essentially um, they began as documentaries, but they slowly, I think, become more biopics. The more I found my own style, now I'm, you know, dramatizing in entire lives of people. It's a great privilege, but <laughs> I'm, I'm very slow at what I do because I'm trying to be as respectful as possible to these people too. It certainly is that. I mean, um, thank you. I I remember the so your your pod, Secret History Hollywood was, was recommended to me by, by a good friend of mine who's probably listening here today. And um, I remember putting on uh, Bullets and Blood, the first episode, and whatever, I remember also looking going, oh my God, look at the length of that. And then, <laughs> whatever, I don't know what I was expecting, but when I heard the opening scene of Bullets and Blood, where we are, you know, cast back into the, the kind of prehistory of the, you know, the Warner Brothers family, and um, it, I, I hadn't heard anything like it. And Thank I you. was just immediately caught up in it. And, and I mean, the, the, you know, I, I think what became obvious is, is well, I know I know why these, these podcasts are, are so long, because essentially they're like audio books that you're, you're mm. that take us into this world and immerse us. And so one mm. of the things I was really curious about was, um, 
about you know because you're 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 not just describing what's happening you are kind of taking us into that moment so mm -hmm. there's presumably you know there's a degree of of poetic license as it were and uh that that I, I, you're you're sort of allowing this moment to to be created as it were uh, yeah. i'm really interested in your process for for doing that um do you know because it, 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 I think it's what's really, really incredible about the podcast is, you know, I, I feel like I've gone through some of Val Luton's most, you know, traumatic moments with him and all of these different things. Um, and you use that, I, that, that word respect there, which I think is really interesting, you know, about respecting the, these people's lives. So, yeah, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about, about that, going into that fine-grained detail of these events that unfolded and recreating. Thank you. Well, thanks. That's, that's very sweet. Thank you. Sorry, that was very um, long. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's very kind of you. Um, so uh, I think the whole thing changed really with Bullets and Blood, which is ironically the first series you listened to, because before that they were very, as I say, documentary style. And um, I didn't really quote people unless the quotes were there, you know. But then when Bullets and Blood came along, the story was so different. I mean, it didn't even um mean for it to be the story of the warner brothers to begin with it was going to be warner gangster movies you know like a universe of gangsters basically a universe of horrors i've done i'm gonna do a universe of gangsters i just love gangster films so you know who do you start with you start with james cagney of course so and it's all at warner brothers so let's do a brief history of the warner brothers i thought you know just a quick page on who they were where they came from and stuff and so i you know i got as many resource materials as i could and just opened them up and just sat there for the whole day going, oh my God, this is the story. This is the one to tell. This is not, you know, we can put gangsters in anywhere, but this is the, this is, it's like Game of Thrones in old Hollywood. I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's incredible. I mean, what a story. So I, I started writing it and um, I couldn't seem to do it justice with this documentary-ish kind of style. It was just, I don't know, it just didn't, the beats weren't hitting right. I think I wrote about 40 pages and thought, I'm not as involved as I want to be in this story. So I just basically rebooted the entire podcast series and just said, look guys, from now on, I'm not making documentaries anymore. I'm making biopics. And when it comes to things like um dialogue and um shall we say um, i mean i have to simulate dialogue obviously that but but what I, my approach to that is if i know a meeting happened between a character and another character for instance and i know what the outcome of that meeting was then i just have to basically simulate the the dialogue because you can get across so much in terms of character in terms of you know where it's going to go you can put clues as to that will hit later on in the story you can do any you can do so much more with dialogue than you can with just saying they had a conversation they fell out and uh, he swore you know, that he would kill him one day or something it's just it just falls flat sure. so um I, had, I took the decision to i mean i don't make i mean obviously i do make up the dialogue but i don't make up what happened yeah. i think you know as long as you stick to the core truth behind it then it's basically like watching mank or you know or you know any other biopic really it's just the case of i've dramatized the truth so now i, I dramatize the truth but i do it in an audio way but i combine it as well with lots of documentary facts and side stories to, to put you further into the time give you a bit more context i don't know i mean i've heard i've heard people say that it's a style that's all my own which is very flattering 
I've, I'm sure I'm sure there are people out there telling it, but um, but I I think you know I'm I'm way more comfortable now, um, with with the style that it's become, than mm. I was before. I don't think I mo I think it was fun to listen to, but um, I wasn't as emotionally connected to yeah. it as I am now, which I think is crucially important. And also, I mean, I think you know, say this without you know sounding immodest, but I think I think they've become better shows. I think you know they've become more about the people than about the films. I think if, if a podcast listener who's up for a new show looks at um, the podcast, they're not going to. They can say it was about old films. So I'm not interested in those. Whereas my shows are not really about old movies. They're about the people. They're about the stories of what was happening. They're about the world at the time. And they're about, you know, basic human things like uh, romance and love and, and death and tragedy and betrayal. And it just so happens that they're all set in old Hollywood. Absolutely. So I think they become a lot more, I don't know, they're a lot more, they have more appeal now to, to people. I think they've become more human than, um, than they were, perhaps. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, that was a very long-winded no, no, answer. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I agree. I, I really enjoy the, like the, the universal and, and it's great they're the great kind of almost like watch alongs you 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 go you can listen to yeah i'm gonna watch those four films and then and um and and it's great to hear you know the, the history of those films but but as you say that 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 wider social history and human history um does allow for a scope that that, that mm. brings something new to it and you, i mean you have those amazing set pieces like you know jimmy cagney's like two-day street Brawl. oh yeah yeah his, his three-day brawl with the kid in the yeah. yeah and i love the um i love the payoff on that as well there's a scene in like in part two where um that kid writes to him from like an insane asylum that he's been put into because he obviously wasn't ever writing the head away you know yeah. and and sort of jimmy sends him these you know he's like well you know i've got nothing against him now so he sends him this big care package of you know shirts and chocolate and cigarettes and stuff never hears from him again but I don't know. It's just the the like all of these moments they seem to have payoffs down the line. That's especially true with the the series I'm writing at the moment. But yeah. there's all these parts in um in the one I'm writing right now that that seem to somehow take you back through memory to set pieces of part one. So yeah, <laughs> sorry. Was, I mean, I'm jumping around a bit here, but but mm. I presume you're are you referencing Carrie in? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so Carry Part Two is um I've nearly finished writing that one now, but um I mean I'm extraordinarily proud of it. It's um it's gone way better than I thought it would. I thought it would be kind of a nothing show, and I was a bit worried about you know because it's just the 30s and what really happens to him during that. But because I because of this style that I write in, I think I've managed to to pack so much in there that's going to mean even more down the road i'm sorry I'm, i know i'm talking <laughs> nonsense <laughs> no 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 you're you're making me very uh, excited to hear it. um and and um i mean so and even as you describe that there it sounds like a lot of it emerges as you write do you know do you mm. know going in like say if we take carrie which has you know this really interesting the first part flashback structure um or flash forward structure i should say that um mm. Uh, do you do you know like do you, do you find the structure of the the podcast as you write it or do you have a sense when you're going into it what it what what that's going to be 
So when I was planning Carrie, I thought to myself, um, I wanted to do it in three acts, basically. The first was going to be his, his sort of early life and the beginnings into film. And the second part was going to be his film career. And then I thought the third part could be after, because he had, you know, a good 30 years after he finished in Hollywood, where so much happened to him, like... Um, like his daughter was the biggest thing, you know, he finally became a father in, in his 60s. He became a brand ambassador for Fabergé and flew all over the world. And, you know, all his friendships with his um, co-stars like Grace Kelly and Hitchcock and uh, Ingrid Bergman, they all continued and they all grew old together and he had to watch them all die. And it was just a, a fascinating kind of what a what, that's a really poignant way to, to finish his story, you know, um, because everyone just knows him for the films, really. And all these marriages and LSD and it was just a great, you know, I thought, wow, part three. But I, I got the sense that people were going to go, well, I know all about his films now. So why would I listen to part three? So, and also, it, you know, the more I looked into it, the more I thought, well, part one's going to be about eight hours. Part two's going to be about eight hours. Part three's going to be about 37 hours. <laughs> so I had to find some way of balancing it out while getting all this um, uh, really valuable story into the other parts and the more I looked at his later life the more I found sort of uh, callbacks to his past like he was trying to be a great parent because he didn't have great parents and uh, he wanted her to have you know a charmed life because he didn't have a charmed life so it almost becomes not a story of Carrigan but a story of parents and children and the things we do for them or things we don't do for them mm. so the framing device became sort of a natural fit really it was it was you know why aren't I telling it in the present and going back to the past and then back to the, the present again so I've taken the last four years of his life and I've interwoven uh, each of those years um, with uh, a period a huge period of his past and it it works I, I think it just it definitely works and I think it also acts as like a palate cleanser to all the misery that's going on as well I get to play around in the 80s as well which is something I've never never been able to do before I'm always in the 30s and 40s yeah. I don't know I'm really having fun with it it's, it's a great it's a great thing to write about and I think it's a, a bit unexpected as well I don't think people were expecting all the modern stuff and I don't think they were expecting anything outside of the films I mean he's only just got to Hollywood by the end of part one and that it was yeah. shamefully 12 hours long uh, the um part two i mean <laughs> part two is 1933 to 1940 and it's at the moment 15 hours long and i can't <laughs> i can't seem to cut it down but um i mean yeah i was driving from dublin to galway when suddenly it became 1984 i nearly crashed <laughs> uh, I, I had um i had a, a, a uh, the guy who uh, oh I can't remember which TV show he makes now but he sent me a message on Twitter saying excuse me I think there's something wrong with your episode I was listening to it and all of a sudden Nick Kershaw started playing <laughs> <laughs> no you're right just keep listening for a second <laughs> you'll see what I did <laughs> um, and how do you how do you you know, decide on your on your topics on your subjects I mean you're going to spend um, a lot of time with this person so yeah i mean i have been accused of you know just covering the characters i like to cover but i think if i'm going to spend two or three years in the company of someone i don't want it to be someone i detest and i don't want to humanize and you know they were you know awful people so i do you know hands up i'm guilty of that i only write about people that 
I want to write about because I've only got so many stories I'm going to be able to tell. Mm. Um, but in Cary Grant and James Cagney, probably my favourite movie stars of all time. I love the Warner Gangster movies. I've done those now. I love um, the Universal Horror movies. I've done those now. I love the Basil Rathbone movies. I've done them. So, I mean, I'm getting, I've done Audrey Hepburn's Early Life, which mm. was, um, that was particularly intriguing to do that. That was and, a um, great story. Thanks, I, man. Yeah. I, I didn't I, know I that story. story that you told in that about her. I mean, but that was, you might say, say a little about what her early life was. <laughs> she, um, she was the daughter of a Dutch baroness and um, a, a financier father from England. And he wasn't the greatest father, should we say, Nazi sympathizer. Tried to get his wife to become a Nazi sympathizer, but she flirted with it and then thankfully didn't. And Audrey was mistakenly caught, caught up in the war in Holland and suffered like you wouldn't believe before, you know, before she even got to her teens. And she was almost starved to death, had to dig through the dirt to find tulip bulbs to eat and make bread out of grass. And um, escaped from the back of a, a truck. A rape truck, yeah. They, they used to trawl the city, the German soldiers, and just snatch girls from the streets. And they, she was one of the girls they snatched one time. And she recounts it in vivid detail. She says, you know, I was in a truck with 10 other girls and we were off to the barracks to be, um, you know, pillaged and probably yeah. shot in the head and dumped in a shallow grave afterwards. And um, she managed to escape because the truck stopped so that the soldiers who were driving it could get out and murder a Jewish boy in front of her. So she managed to escape and um, managed to get home, you know, miraculously survived the war. Um, she was the same age as Anne Frank as well, who was, who was always a, um, like a, a hero to her forevermore because she shared so much in terms of, you know, age and experience. And, um, and then went on to have this fairy tale Hollywood career. So I thought the story there is not, the Hollywood career that everyone knows about and has been done to death. The story is her early life. So mm. I, um, I wrote just, you know, she just makes Roman Holiday and walks up to the stage to get her Oscar. And that's where my story finishes. So um. <laughs> it was a really great creative decision. There. It was, you know, thanks, man. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you must really, I mean, as you say, you, these are, you, you pick people you you obviously care about to write about in the first place but you must really grow to to love them if that's not too strong a word as you as no you. i do i remember i getting to the end of uh, the hitchcock series and <laughs> and literally weeping because i wasn't going to be able to spend any more time with him and he was dead too i couldn't bring him back or anything you know he, he died and and um the whole point of that series was to say he wasn't great all the time you know but he he was a human being and they're very complicated people and and uh when i remember reading that line out at the end and it was a bit more it was a bit better written than that <laughs> and then thinking you oh, know no that's it that's me and hitchcock finished the same with val luton as well you know what a guy you know, creative spirit and a true visionary mm. and finishing his story was quite an emotional moment especially because no one's really done his story before you know that there are some slim biographies and they're all seem they all seem to be padded with the other movies of the time this is what he influenced and this is you know what was happening in the world and stuff i thought yeah enough of that tell me about him i want to know about him so um when i was writing it you know fortuitously um brooke darnell who works at the library of congress 
she got in touch and said, I, I've started listening to your Val Luton series. I think I'd written parts one, two, and three by then. She said, I work in the Library of Congress and I have access to Luton's papers. Would you like to see them? I was like, yes, please. So she spent, I think, four weeks um, scanning letters, documents, every scrapbooks, diaries, everything. This stuff's never been seen before. Really? No so one's she, ever used them? No, I mean, there's been a couple of letters, yeah. but nowhere near. The, I mean, there's stuff that wasn't even catalogued that she sent to me. Wow. Um, and there's, I still have thousands and thousands of documents that she sent over that I didn't even get to use because I was so far into the writing by the time they came. Um, and it just gave him a voice. It gave him a soul, you know? I mean, I always said that, you know, I gave him a voice. But Brooke gave him his soul. And um, it's like, it makes me so proud to have completed that project in particular because it's like the the definitive Luton document. You can't really, you know, there's, no, there's nothing else you can know about the man now. You know how he felt on certain days. You, know, you can hear his voice in the letters he wrote to Ruth. And everyone's just, you know, sort of gone, oh, well, he made movies at RKO. He died early. No one's really gotten to the heart of him before. So. And I that think what's amazing as, as well as, is how you um, you bring a, a focus to these films that, as you say, haven't got, you know, I mean, they have to some extent, I mean, it's not like Val Luton isn't, his films aren't recognized as being distinct, but as you mm. say, they haven't received the kind of critical attention that they deserve. Like for me, a film like Ghost Ship, I had never seen that before. And that, mm. that was a, I fell in love with that film. That was such a fantastic film. Oh, it's so good. It's a hypnotic yeah. film, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, all all of his works have something about them. Like even *Youth Runs Wild* and *Mademoiselle Fifi*, they're not successful films, I would say, but um, you can definitely see what he was trying for. And there are moments in it, in all of his stuff where he just he he touches something in your soul that you go, "Oh, I felt that before." Or, oh yeah, I know exactly how that character is feeling right now, or how unfair, or how joyous. He he was incredible, An incredible writer, incredible producer and creator love him <laughs> have you any um ambitions to to go and do some archival more archival <laughs> research uh having having done some of it myself it's it's uh i know how addictive it is um you know to be sitting surrounded by document these documents that are you know i remember seeing a a, a, a letters just a check signed by alfred hitchcock and uh, you know you could just i i think it the, the 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 library of the um the academy in in LA is possibly one of my favorite places in the world it's just incredible um so wow. have you have you any any kind of desire to 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 go and spend some more time with with I'd, I'd love to yeah it might it might well activate my kleptomania and somewhere <laughs> I might try and stick a document under my shirt or something they do they do keep a very close eye on you I've noticed <laughs> but I'm fast <laughs> <laughs> my my pride and joy actually is uh, I have a signed Myrna Loy picture up there okay. and I have um I have a letter that James Cagney wrote to a man in Reading, actually, who lives in who lived in the UK, who was just one of his friends. He just wrote him a letter. I got that as well. So yeah, I do. I do think there is um there is something quite magical about knowing that James Cagney touched that paper, or signed that paper, or took the trouble to send it away. So yeah, I I, I would love to do that. That sounds like 
that sounds like a plan we should do that together yeah oh um, yeah <laughs> well i was i was there about to go in there on the 10th of march last year um, no way i was in los angeles <laughs> waiting to go in and they sent me an email saying the library's closed um i'll come back tomorrow is that what you are now you're just waiting outside <laughs> yeah. it's a motel <laughs> very nicely uh decorated so yeah it's lovely uh yeah so um and is there i mean have you um, like one of the things that you, you again your podcasts are, are sort of you know and the secret history uh in particular is known for is the um you know these tangents you go on where you 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 kind of as you say contextualize the story by talking about related stories um mm. you must have a lot of fun with that like discovering mm. those, exploring those yeah i love that that's like the fun the fun part really it's like it's just all these little diversions you can take because i always take them if i can as well it's like you know um didn't have to tell anyone about the Ifland ring in the Hitchcock series you know it's completely doesn't mean anything to the Hitchcock story but half a page of you know research that I was just so taken with you know, this, this like fabled ring that <laughs> passes from German actor to German actor and only on their death as well it's like what a crazy story and things like you know the um the, the war the second world war things that um you know, Hitchcock had to look at, you know, and, and study for a documentary that he was going to make that never came through in the end. I, I love all that stuff because it, it kind of gives you more of an idea of, of the time and, and why people were acting the way they did. I mean, Bullets and Blood is full of gangster stories, real life gangster stories that they were just so much, they're so much fun to, to research and write about. The trick is like getting them in there and trying to get back to the main story in a seamless way. Yeah. Um, doesn't always work. <laughs> I was going to ask. I mean, because I, I, it's, I find when I'm listening to it, I get so immersed in it. I kind of forget what we were doing, and then we get back to the story. And what I find really <laughs> impressive is I'm always straight back in. So, um, but it must. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe to ask a wider question rather than just tell you how wonderful you are. Um, the like, I can see how that has evolved. Like, I've been listening to the Hitchcock um, over the last year. I was listening to the Hitchcock. Um, podcast series and i could see the storytelling chops evolving mm. as 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 it went on and, and also doing things like you, you had hitchcock's voice in you know mm. which obviously as you you eradicate that from from um you don't have any of that in, in your podcast now um but also there were moments where you say something happened in hitchcock's career when I was listening, I was thinking, I think he prob you'd probably get more dramatically out of that moment now mm. uh, than than maybe you did then. You know, just that there were, you know, th that you 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 would have framed it in, in a way. I I'm basically saying you're you're kind of. It seems like feels like your storytelling has evolved over over the, the the period. Yeah, I think it's become. I think I think I I can't really put it into any better sort of phrasing than I think I found my voice over time. I think like with Carrie, I'm writing it sometimes and uh, I'm thinking, God, I haven't talked about what was happening in 1935 at any point during this bit, but I seem to some, somehow seem to have managed to uh, convey, you know, how Carrie Grant felt taking his mother out of an asylum, you know, that to me is more, I don't know, it's, it's more about trying to find, especially when emotions are involved, like this part I'm writing at the moment is all about how he was feeling at certain times and how his marriage broke down and what it was like to reconnect with a parent he thought was dead and 
you know, the death of his father and falling in love and falling out of love and stuff like that. You can't write that stuff by just saying he fell out of love or she fell out. You have to kind of make it psychologically authentic because I want to, I want people to emotionally connect with him so that when, he, when they get to the end of the episode, they say, God, I know, I feel like I know Cary Grant now. I feel like I know him up until 1940. I know how he felt as a child. I, you know, <laughs> I, what what a guy or you know what an you know an, an ass ass hat or <laughs> but um i think you know you can't really do that with a uh, documentary style, yeah. style storytelling and I, I think it was important um in bringing when you want to bring someone to life i think it's not so much about telling you what they did it's more about showing you how they felt or um uh, trying to connect you trying to connect your your soul to theirs I guess that's why the writing had to evolve because it's the only way of doing it. One of the things that's come up in the the chats we've been having over the last few weeks with people who do all sorts of different jobs, but it's something about expertise maybe or about you're becoming more more, uh, comfortable in a role that you do. Mm. Yeah over time you, you start to trust your instinct maybe or, you know that something feels right or you get you you know w- w- do you feel that way that you know you're now more confident that no actually the way whatever way feels right will be right as it were i when i start when i wrote bullets and blood um the first part it was such a departure on the podcast everything was you know very fact-based before it's fact-based still but you know it was very cut and dry documentary style and I put the first part out and I think the first sort of five or six messages I got were this is great I can you know I love this I love this new direction you're taking and then I started getting lots of other messages saying um this isn't the same anymore I don't like it and I got iTunes reviews saying that ah oh, that's it I'm not going to listen anymore and, and for a while I did think to myself have I made a mistake and have I, you know, should I have stuck to what was working or should I have actually followed my gut and, and gone with it this way? And um, I think you can't, you can't tailor what needs to come out of you to one or two dissenting voices. You just have to, you have to, you have to go what <laughs> because at the end of the day, it's lovely that people listen to my shows. And of course I thrive on, you know, putting stuff out there and, and and hopefully people enjoying it and um you know it's changed my life totally changed my life telling these stories but i can't i can't um alter the way i write now and i can't i wouldn't ever go back to you know doubting again because um because i wouldn't be fulfilled i have to make the shows for myself it has to be the show i would want to listen to it has to be the account of carrie grant's life that i would want to hear or see or feel the same with Val Luton and, and the Warner Brothers. It had to be, it has to be the way I, I need it to be. And if other people like it, then that's kind of um that's kind of a bonus to it. But yeah, I I, I you have to follow your instincts when you're when you're creating things, I think. Because otherwise you're making it for six or seven people who express disappointment. And you'll look back on it, you know. I always imagine that I'm gonna have an attic full of these things. I'm going to get them out when I'm 75 or 80 years old. And I'm going to say, am I still proud of these? And, you know, press play. And I think if I'm making them for, you know, Len in Lanarkshire, then I don't think I will be proud. <laughs> so I have to make them for me. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's a bit like as a, as a teacher, 
you always have mm. to overcome the instinct not to focus on the one person who looks bored and go, I'm mm. going to win that person over. Yeah. <laughs> probably just tired because they have a job that were, they were up all night working or whatever it might be. So, yeah. yeah that's um, but just actually to talk a little bit about that, about audience and developing mm. an audience, um, because you were able to, to go from, from doing this, you know, alongside doing a, doing a full-time job to, to making this your full-time job. Um, I mean, that, that must be, that must be amazing. That's like, it's such a, like I said at the beginning, you know, when you, when I got to 38 and even into, you know, into 40, I still wasn't, you know, it wasn't my full-time job then. It was still just a side thing I did. But uh, to think that suddenly you can make a switch and and do something you love and have always aspired to doing throughout your entire life. It was just, and it was always, you know, it was always there. I, um, I should, should have started earlier, basically. But yeah, to have, to have built an audience and to to make a living and to do it, to do it all day long, it's just a dream come true. I can't even put it into words, to be honest. And I didn't, I honestly thought my path was set and, um, it's now going off into all kinds of wonderful directions. <laughs> I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, someone said to me recently, I love people who love things. Uh, and it's so nice to be in the company of someone who, who so clearly loves something. I think it's true. And I think that's what comes through in the podcast. Um, uh, just in terms of the mechanics of that, though, of, of building the audience, I, I read mm. an interview you did in 2015, I think it was, where you were talking about, you know, you were sort of weighing up ways of, of monetizing the podcast, essentially. And I think you were saying yeah. I'm, you had been approached by a platform that you felt wasn't the right fit. Um, mm. So how did you go about, you know, just taking the steps or, or, or beginning to think about, you know, how this could be... Um, something that you know that could financially support you well um uh, patreon was in its infancy when i started podcasting and um and i thought to myself that's that's the kind of model i would want to do you know like I, I could do the main show and then i could put out bonus shows and more and previews and things on patreon but i was also quite aware that you know i didn't really have uh the, an inbuilt audience yet had to wait had to build it first and I was very lucky in my first year of Secret History of Hollywood, I think iTunes featured it on, you know, 10, 10 years of podcasting and movie fanatics thing. And they put me on the front page a couple of times. So I was very lucky with that. I mean, I can't, I, you know, I, I wouldn't like to say where I'd be now if they hadn't done that. I don't know. And uh, also, you know, of course, Mr. Gatiss heard the show. And he heard the Sherlock Holmes episode, actually, and he got in touch and he was like, I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Have you got any more? And I was like, yeah, I've got Universal Horror. You will great. So he came back a week later and was like, you know, oh, I really enjoyed that. Have you got any more? It's like, well, I'm doing one on, um, I, I was going to do one on maybe some horror. And he said, do Val Luton. So I was oh, like, really? oh, okay. And he said, if you if you do, let me know. So I said, well, would you like to be in it? And he said, yes, I would. Yeah, very much so. So, um, yeah, he was incredibly sweet. Um, a funny story about that. Too. Um, so I wrote the uh, the twelve intros that, that play before each episode. They're like fairy tales that each film yeah. was based on. And um, I said to him, "I've got these things. I'll come down to London. You don't need to go anywhere." He said, "Great. I'll get a room at my agent's house then, uh, my agent's uh, office, and uh, we'll record it there." So <laughs> I was supposed to be there at ten o'clock, and I think the M4 was blocked. 
So I walked into the office about 1 p.m. <laughs> and I phoned ahead and said, could you tell him that, you know, I'm going to be late? And I hadn't told him. Oh, God bless his heart. He'd been sat there for three hours waiting. <laughs> he wasn't best pleased, but, you know, we talked about tales of the unexpected and stuff, and he was fine after that. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, it was really excruciating. Anyway, so, yeah, the audience built through through those kinds of things, you know, yeah. like Mark Gatiss is on the show, so yeah. therefore he retweets it, and bosh, you've got, you know, five-figure downloads all of a sudden, um, and iTunes feature it, and they put it on Twitter, and, you know, bosh, that helps it take off but I was very aware that before you can make a living at these things you really do need to build an audience which is um, a mistake I see very often with other not even podcasters but creators I know musicians and artists and stuff who've gone right I've made a picture or I've made a song uh, here's my Patreon and um, you, you watch them uh, get one or two and then stagnate and you think to yourself you kind of you, you you can't really um, expect people to know you. They don't know who you are yet or what you're capable of. And all these things you might promise them, it doesn't really mean anything to, to someone when you're this early. Yeah. I thought, well, I've got a good bank of episodes. I waited two and a bit years. I had a good bank of episodes and people knew the kind of stories I was writing. And you know, I, I was able to say, I can give you this each month and this each month. And I set a launch date and um, yeah, it just took straight off. And um, I, I remember sitting on it for a while thinking, oh, is it time yet? Is it time yet? And um, yeah, I quit my job at the end of 2018. I was a chef. I was working like ridiculous hours every day, 16 hours or something crazy and not getting home to one in the morning and then sitting up all night writing these shows in my understairs cupboard. Um, but yeah, that was quite a moment. I finished on Christmas Eve, 2018. I remember, you know, throwing down the apron, going out to the bar and, having a beer with them all and, and thinking, oh my God, this is, this is my job now. And I have to say, I mean, none of it would have been possible without, I mean, you're a patron. I'm extraordinarily grateful to everyone who's listened to the show and, you know, still to this day, sign up and say, yeah, I believe in you enough to give you a couple of quid a month. And, and um, yeah, so it's, it's become an incredible model really, isn't it? Because it's the kind yeah. of thing that I think if you said it 15 years ago, this mm. is a financial model, I, you know, was that really? But, but yeah, exactly. It's funny how, I mean, and I think, I mean, speaking of from the other side, uh, I, you know, there's, there, you, there is a sense of involvement that obviously is very minor and a sense of a kind of emotional commitment to something when that, that brings its own reward as well. I think from, from the subscriber's point of view, there is something yeah. very, very pleasant about the model, but um, I wonder, does it, you know, does it does it then? Do you feel under pressure? Essentially, then does it increase the pressure? Do you know have content and bonus content, and you run film clubs, and you you know you 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 mm. diversify what you what you offer? Um, I think definitely, yeah, has has definitely created an extra level of pressure. I do, I do put put the patrons above everything else. I do like even above the main podcast. You know, if I haven't, if I, if I've got a choice between writing for Secret History of Hollywood or or you know, I'd make you a bonus show. It has to be the bonus show, and then uh, you know, I'll just stay up extra late and write and carry or something. But uh, I think you know, you could say it's the best thing I've ever done. You could say it's the worst thing I've ever done because there is that um, sense of crushing disappointment when suddenly you lose ten of them. And you go, what have I done wrong? And you look sure. at their messages, and you say, and some of them say, uh, you know, oh, 
things have changed because of the pandemic and you go well that's understandable of course and then you get some who say you're putting out too much content and you go wow wow what do i do now do i put a less so there is that added uh, level yeah. of pressure definitely but um you know I, i've been extraordinarily lucky i i that's that's another reason why i think um some of these creators who start patrons patrons too early don't see a massive take up as well as because um if you don't have a following and you don't have like a launch day where you get loads of numbers people unfortunately look at numbers as a way of uh authenticating someone i think this you know the reason that people look at follower numbers on twitter and instagram if, if someone says you know i've got a patron i'm going to give you this amount of content every month and you go over there and he hasn't got any followers and and you wonder why is it bad content or is it just that he's a no one or something so i mean my, my sister actually is um she wants to do a patron i keep saying hold off until until you have a, a good audience and i think that's it's crucial you can't just wander in there and say i'm new give me all your money i think you have to make it valuable and you people have to know you and, and connect with you i think that's why i do film clubs and things and like i always talk to my patrons all day long you know if someone sends me a message i'll be straight on there and back to them and they become like friends so it's a way of investing in you personally i think and then they're investing in you not not the content sure yeah and, and that sense of community as you say is is kind of essential mm. to it isn't it i mean you yeah, you talk about yeah actually again i saw in that interview you talked about not being a big fan of or not being particularly active in social media I think that's obviously probably something that you have to, you have to do. Would you say? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean that was I'd, a long time ago, but yeah, I don't. Uh, I, you know, what? I'm not very good at selling myself. I can't take compliments. I, you know, I, I, I'm not very good at saying, "Hey, this is great. Listen to this." I just say, "Here it is," and then just sort of shy away and hope people listen to it. Yeah. So in that way, I'm I'm not very good for social media because I don't. Um, I don't sell myself and I'm constantly being told I should sell myself more. And I believe I should. It's just, I don't know, it's something in my psychological makeup just refuses to allow me to believe in myself <laughs> in that way. So, um, yeah, when it comes to social media, I'm not not the greatest person to ask, I have to be honest. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, um, I guess it's 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 something that 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 you know is, is unavoidable as a as a creator mm -hmm. and as a <clears throat> Yeah, especially as a digital creator as well. Yeah, it has to be, you have to be, you have to be on it, I think. Yeah, but I do it reluctantly. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're slightly running out of time. I don't want to keep it too long. I just wanted to ask, there's a couple of questions I always ask everyone to finish on, but before we do, I'd just like to, because we haven't talked that much about Attaboy Clarence, which is your fantastic <laughs> regular show that uh, is so much fun and so enjoyable. And yeah, just, you, as you, you said at the start, it, it kind of, it, did you use the term palate cleanser for you? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I love doing it. It's just, it's fun. You know, I watch, I watch a movie and I go, oh my God, that was unexpectedly brilliant. Like this week I watched a film called uh, Lost Angel from 1943, <clears throat> which I would never ever have supposed would be as fantastic as it is. It's all about a baby that's brought up in a lab by <laughs> a team of doctors who decide to take all the emotion out of her upbringing and just bring up to be this like super kid, basically. And it's the story of how she sort of breaks out, finds this reporter and goes on an adventure with him and discovers the magic in life, you know. But I, I watched it, uh, I laughed my ass off. I, you know, I fell in love with the whole thing. And I just, I, you know, it's the sort of thing that's making me go, oh, 
can't wait to talk about that this week. And that's what Attaboy Carrots does for me. It just reinvigorates my love for old movies every week. So. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, <laughs> favorite old, favorite classic movie? Oh, this is always a, a fight between It's a Wonderful Life and Rebecca. It's Ooh. always one of those two. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's Rebecca this week. I think. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, It's a Wonderful Life would be would definitely be up there. Um, hmm. I uh, I have I kind of I have films that I obsess about that I wouldn't necessarily say. You know, it's not like it's the greatest film ever. Hmm. There's a film called East Lynn from 1931 that I have become completely obsessed with. Uh, What's it called? Sorry, East Lynn. East Lynn. Yeah, no one's seen it. There's only one copy of it in UCLA, um, and I think it's been on TCM because I I managed to buy a really poor DVD copy of it, which missed the last third missing, and it suddenly stopped playing. It won't play anymore. But uh, <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's this amazing old melodrama. It was like it was hoary at the time. Like even in 1931, mm. the reviews are like, mm, this is a bit this is a bit um, outdated. But mm. there's something about, so I, yeah, I mean, a bit like, I, I kind of tend to get caught up in films, uh, mm. obsessed with certain films, not necessarily because they're the greatest film ever, but, but I, I, it's sometimes hard to say why. <laughs> you probably Yeah, not. it's almost like they, 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 they fit at certain times, don't they? It's like, when I need a hug, then yeah. I'll watch It's a Wonderful Life. When I need, when I need to watch some splendor, it's Rebecca, you know, when I want to, when I want a totally, you know, no, no antagonist in a movie. I'll watch Mr. Blanding's Bills of Dream House yeah. and it will be the best film ever for that moment in my life. <laughs> Time, so. I think if I had to pick a film that actually is really, I, I might go with Shadow of a Doubt. I do love Shadow Oh yeah, that's pretty perfect, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> listen, we're nearly at the end. I just, there's two questions I ask everyone. And sure, uh, go for it. <laughs> the first is, can you, and the answer may be no, can you describe a typical day in your, your work day? Work day. <clears throat> so um, I will, I do, I do some freelance work um, sort of every day and it's sort of, I can fit it in around my own stuff. So I get up and get that out of the way first. And then um, I always have a good, good breakfast and then I uh, get to work on Carrie because I have a uh, writing target of three, three finished pages a day. So sometimes I'll finish that at 1 p.m. because I've stormed it and sometimes it'll be 11 p.m. It's, it's just not <laughs> happening. Um, and in between that, I try and um, have any meetings that come up and uh, try and think about what the next piece of bonus content is. It has no real structure, to be honest. I'm just like, oh, oh crap, I've got to do that next. Oh, no, no, I've forgotten to do that. So, um, yeah, I generally tumble into bed about midnight, all exhausted and disappointed with myself. That's, <laughs> That's the only common denominator. <laughs> That's, That's great. And the last question, what qualities do you think someone has to have to do your job? Oh, well, I think you, I think you brought up the main quality, which was um, um, following your instinct, um, because I think, you know, you really need to drill down and, and identify why you love doing what you do and um, following that all the way to the end, because if not, you will quickly lose lose patience with it and um, it won't be the thing you envisioned or the thing you leave to the world. I think that's a great way to finish up. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, no, it's brilliant. Thanks, Adam. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Um, oh, you too, Con. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been really great and I look forward very much to, uh, well, to 
the ongoing adventures of Attenboy and and to to carry part two. Of course, I've heard some of it. But, uh, as a, thank you very much. Thank great. you. Um, <laughs> thanks a million. If you want to just hang on one second, just we'll let everyone sure. file out and uh, just say proper goodbye. So thanks. <laughs>